Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. I'm excited to see that movie. I don't know about you guys, but... That looks like a pretty movie. This is not going to live up to that, uh, I don't think, but we're going to have a good time. We're in uh, week three of our series, Overlooked, and as maybe you picked up from the video, we're really taking some time to look at some passages, really some people of Scripture that have been kind of overlooked. They're tucked away at the end of the Old Testament. They're small books, most of them under 10 chapters, and uh, they kind of deal with an obscure part of both history and Israel's history and really the history of our faith. Uh, And so we tend to just kind of gloss right over these books, these authors, these prophets as we turn our way to the New Testament. And so we're trying to make a stop right here and to say, no, let's let's pay attention to these messages. Let's pay attention to these words. Let's see what's buried in here as we dive in over the next couple of weeks here. We're going to do half of the minor prophets now, and uh, then we're going to pick up the other six uh, a little bit later in our year here. But uh, we're on week three. And uh, today we're going to talk about the prophet Micah. But before we get to that, I want to just take a step back and kind of address something that's present in this entire series. Maybe you've felt it if you've been doing the reading each week. I'm, I'm sure that you've kind of stumbled across it, right? The challenge is that not only as we talk about these things on Sunday, but that those would equip you to step into these books, read them throughout the week as we gather together for the next week, add them to your devotions. But, but one one of the tensions that we see and that we experience here, and it's not, it's not isolated to Micah, it's really all of these minor prophets, is this central theme that seems controversial to us. It seems at odds. It's the theme that is both judgment and hope. As we read these books continually, we we know that they're prophets, we know that they're messages of judgment that are coming through, uh, but there's always couched at the end kind of this this message of of hope. So like it starts out really, really strong, God's going to destroy everything and everybody, woe is you, but it always kind of comes around at the end, which can kind of feel like whiplash, it can kind of feel like a a back and forth, right? How are we to interpret what God is doing here? The, The judgment feels like anger and wrath and and all of those Old Testament pictures that we see of God that that we may not like and that we may choose to shy away from. And then the hope that comes is a little bit confusing. It almost seems out of character, but but we like that hope part because really that reminds us of the character of Jesus and the God that he introduces us to and his grace and his mercy, but it creates this tension, this back and forth that can be difficult to understand at best or at worst, it can cause us to remove one side of the equation. We can choose to overlook the judgment piece, and we can say, that, that doesn't feel good. I don't, I don't like that kind of God. I don't like that kind of faith. And so we're just going to overlook these passages. We're going to overlook the judgments that are coming, and we're just going to place all of the emphasis on the hope therein. Or we could disregard the hope that is present because of the judgment that we can't get past or over. In other words, if that's what God is like, if this judgment represents this Old Testament theocrat, and I don't want anything to do with the judgment or the hope, and we dismiss faith 
all together. And really, that's what this series is all about, is walking right into that tension that's existed for thousands of years and not dismissing it, but seeking to understand it and hopefully to find some application in our own lives as well. Now, today is no different. We're looking at the book of Micah, and similar to other books that we've already looked at, Micah will fit this mold of the balance between judgment and hope. So I'm going to give you some time to find Micah if you brought your Bible with you. If not, I'd encourage you to slip your hands up. Our ushers have Bibles uh, that you can follow along with. We're going to try to do an overview of the Bible. So that's on page 437 if you're using one of the Worship Center Bibles, 437. Seven. And if you don't own a Bible, you can just keep this. It's our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word in your life. But as you're turning there or trying to find it, let's just do some of the background pieces here. So Micah is a prophet to the southern kingdom. You may remember that uh, the kingdom of Israel is divided into a northern and southern kingdom. They're split at this point in history. And so Micah is going to be a minister to Judah, to the southern kingdom. His ministry happens in the same time period as Isaiah and Hosea. So he's prophesying, he's ministering when the northern kingdom is in fact either coming to destruction or already destroyed. But he occupies the similar space in history with a couple other authors, but his primary focus is that southern kingdom. Now, Micah also is addressing the fall of Judea that's going to happen either at the end of his life uh, or that he's foretelling to. And so Micah, as per typical, is going to start with a lot of the judgmental phrases that uh, maybe we've become, get, maybe we've started getting used to. We're not used to them yet by any means. Uh, but he's going to start pretty hot and heavy here. We're going to start at verse 3 after his introduction. So this is Micah chapter 1, verse 3. Look. The Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him. The valleys split apart like, like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. And what is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Welcome to church this morning. I hope you're encouraged. Right? But, but this, this is the judgment that we're kind of, we, we step back from and go, Ooh, I don't know what that means. A couple things to point out here, right? He uses Jacob as a reference to the northern kingdom. Samaria is the capital uh, of that region, of that place. The southern kingdom, Judah, he refers to Jerusalem, which is the capital of that place. And we see these powerful images of judgment that God that applies to God, right? He's powersome and fearful. He melts mountains like wax before fire, valleys split like water rushing down a slope. The, the imagery that is given to us here is very, very concrete and very, very intense. So why so much destruction? Why is God coming to destroy, to remove these nations? Well, quite frankly, because they aren't following God's laws. It says because of the sins of the people of Jacob in the north and of Judah in the south, and so God 
is bringing judgments because of their failure to keep their promises to live according to the standard that God has given them. You know, Micah, a little bit later on in chapter 3, is going to leverage these things specifically at the leaders, those in authority, whether they're political leaders or religious leaders. He takes up causes with everyone on both sides to say, hey, you've been charged with leading these people, and instead of leading them in godly ways, instead of leading them in truth, instead of leading them in the ways that are in line with what God would want, you're lining your own pocketbooks. You're leading for your own selfish gain. You're only prophesying when it benefits you. And God says that is where the issue is. See, part of this issue with the judgment and hope thing is that we want to reduce these ideas to their simplest problems, to their simplest context. But if we only approach God on one side of Scripture, then really we miss the opportunity for where God is working all around us. That a people, that a person misbehaved and now has earned eternal judgment and now people are destroyed because of it, right? All of a sudden we can kind of see what our critics are saying, that God of the Bible, the God who destroys willy-nilly, isn't somebody that we like either, Here's how it goes on then to say that uh, this is in Micah chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then I said to you, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh and strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. So, so something interesting happens here. Right? Right? Micah, Micah seems to say to us that, that the reason that the Lord is so upset is not simply that people are disobeying God's laws. It's not simply that they're sinning, although they are. What he's saying is that the leaders and those in power are actually creating structures and systems that are working against the good of the people. They've been entrusted with leadership. They've been entrusted with God's direction, with his vision for them. They've been entrusted with his power and authority to lead his kingdoms well. And instead of doing that, they're actually harming the people. Again, you see that very, very visceral language that he's using. This is very descriptive. It's very on point. In Micah's mind, what these leaders and prophets are doing is slaughtering God's people. What they're doing is not, in fact, just disobeying God. What they're doing is actually bringing down a whole people group. They've forgotten that they are in the place of being freed from oppression under God's law. This is the whole point of the Exodus in the Old Testament, that God would bring out a people in freedom for himself, and instead they find themselves serving in the role of the oppressors. See, a lot of times when we approach this judgment and hope thing so simplistically, we get stuck on the judgment that's there, and we don't want to wade into it. But when we actually wade into it, we see that what God is actually doing is trying to bring out something good from all this bad. What God is actually trying to do is to set about his rule and reign and his kingdom. But in order to do that, 
There has to be some justice done. This is the point of the judgment that we see in the prophets. See, God's laws provide life, and ignoring them causes suffering. The rule that God wants to put in place is for our benefit and for our good. It's for the good of the people. And when those things are ignored, not only do we as individuals suffer, but when they're ignored at a higher level, a higher echelon of society, everything collapses and suffers because of it. Right? It's not simply that they were disobeying God's laws. It's not simply that they were sinning, although they were, and that's bad, and we need to pay attention to those things. But they forgot that they had become, that they had been freed from oppression and found themselves being the oppressors themselves. This was the problem that God brings to him. So what are we to do about this? How do we navigate these kind of experiences? Here's what Micah sees as his role. This is in chapter 3, a little bit further down. What do we do to these leaders who are disobeying? Micah says, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Micah says, so, so in the midst of all of this badness, in the midst of all of these leaders who are only serving themselves, I'm here to give you a hope and a future. Micah's role is to do the role of a prophet, which is to convict of sin, to notify of God's judgment, but also to say, but the reason for this is a hope and a future which God has for you. This is the dilemma of the prophetic literature. It's why it feels so similar each and, each and every time. It's very poetic. It's very prophetic in nature, and it has these, these dueling tensions of judgment and hope. And the role of the prophet is to walk into those places, to notify them of the judgment that God has for them and the hope that is on the other side of it. So Micah enters the scene here to serve as God's voice, to convict the leaders of sin. And the word for, their, for that is judging, which sounds very different to our modern ears, but what the point is is that that judgment is about the hope and the future, not just the destruction. We see this in chapter 4 as Micah projects a very different image of God than what we saw in chapter 1. Here's what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. In the last days, as the mountain of the, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and people will stream to it and say, many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples. He will settle disputes for nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. See, the fact is that judgment is present in these books. Absolutely, it's there. We can't get over it. But the point and the purpose for the judgment is this, is God's rule and reign and his kingdom, which is a kingdom of peace, which is a kingdom where there is no war and no destruction. What God is attempting to do continually, we see this throughout Scripture from the very beginning to the very end in Revelation, is that he's trying to establish his kingdom. But to do that requires that people in power want 
want the same thing as God wants for them. And when they don't, the problem isn't just that they disobey God, it's that they set up an earthly kingdom, an earthly ritual and power structure that works against the kingdom that God is creating. He says as much in the next four verses in Micah chapter 4, verse 6. It says, in that day, declares the Lord, I will, I will gather the lame. I will assemble the exiles to those that I have brought grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion, and from that day and forever... As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. Right? Is destruction coming? Yes, but its purpose is for evil to be eradicated and for God's rule to take its place, for God's kingdom to come here on earth just as it is in heaven. This idea of a remnant, of a people held back that God will bring up is consistent throughout the entirety of the Old Testament and New Testament, and we see it here. And then Micah has this beautiful description of the redeemed kingdom. You may recognize it if you've been in church around the holidays. Here's what Micah 5, 2 says. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old and ancient Times. Of course, we interpret this as a reference to Jesus. We read these verses at Christmas time, and so this is where the hope and the judgment kind of all get brought to fruition. See, these messages, these prophets aren't just about a set time and a set place, although they are. They are specific to peoples and nations and places that are absolutely present at their time of writing. But by serving, by prophesying, by being servants of the Lord, their messages are also carried far beyond themselves. Have applications to the people of God there and then, but also here and now as we see them all kind of give a nod to this future hope, this Messiah, this coming King, this putting things right that we know happens in Jesus in the New Testament. But the point of all of that is simply this, that the point of judgment isn't about punishment. It's not simply about the leveraging of punishment towards people. It's actually about a refining process. It's about a refinement that must occur within us and within the people of God to become the people of God who will institute the rule and reign of such a kingdom. In other words, what the prophets represent is a changing of a people, a growing of a people to be transformed into the people and the nation of God who will actually carry out the things that he wants present. See, when we only look on the surface of a story, we get scared away by these harsh judgments. They offend our modern ears. We miss what's really being conveyed in the text, which is actually grace and mercy and hope and love and a future. But those messages are, are couched in a warring culture about 2,000 years ago, and their very existence would be understood by our modern ears as barbaric, just the way that life happened, which is why reading this ancient book is so imperative to us today. Because it not only exposes us to those stories, to those people, to different thoughts and ideas and a way in which it happened, but it also points out our own flawed perspective as well. Right? Even today, we're so quick to casting judgment as a people, as a humanity. At this point in history, we tell people that they're wrong for every reason under the sun. 
But the reality is that without a criticism, without applying truth, without a judgment, so to speak, there is no progress, right? Nothing gets better if we devolve into a place where there is no truth, where there is no objective standard, where your truth can be your truth and my truth is simply my truth and you can believe whatever you want, then we miss the things that move us forward in history. Ultimately, this is the message not only of Micah, but of all the prophets. Which brings us to some of the most well-known verses from Micah's small book here in the Old Testament. What are we to do in light of this judgment? What are we to do with this God who expects so much from us? We've heard some hope. We've heard what God intends to do. So what is our responsibility in it? They were asking this question 2,000 years ago. I think we may be asking the same question as well. In light of injustice in the world and art of our desire to see God's kingdom come in our lives and in our neighborhoods, how do we accomplish such a large mission? Perhaps the the sum of this section, even of the whole Bible, appears here, and it's in contrast to what we've been talking about. While we tend to oversimplify the judgment piece, we, we don't accept the simple conclusions that Micah draws here in chapter 6, and it's, it's easy to see why. What should we do to fight injustice, to bring about God's kingdom, to fight oppression, to usher in peace? How do we make heaven, or how do we make earth a little more like heaven? How do we serve this God of power and judgment in his mission to establish his rule and reign? How do we bring about God's kingdom when we're struggling to pay bills or get the kids to school? How do we deal with injustice when we're moved by compassion by people that are trying to come to America to see this greater life that America represents, but at the same time we're worried for our own futures and our own safety and our own job security? What does it look like to follow God in the midst of all the swirling chaos around us? Here's what Micah says, Micah chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? In other words, should I, should I offer sacrifices to God? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Does God want more money? Is that what he's after? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Does God want to break even? Is that what he's after here? Verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It is no overstatement to say that the law and the prophets, that the entire Old Testament and New Testament are wrapped up in this teeny tiny section buried away in the Old Testament, that these are addressing and answering some of the age-old questions that we have. What does this God want from us? How do we live that out? How do we find ourselves in line with this God of the universe? What are we to do in the midst of of this, and the answer is contained right at the tail end of that section. What, is the, what does it look like to be a steward of the kingdom, a Christian, a Christ follower? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Let's go through those briefly together. Act justly. Do the right things, always. 
Treat people fairly with dignity and respect. Call them to account when they've made a mistake or crossed a line. Encourage and foster relationships of right actions. What does this actually look like? You may be a leader at work. How can you create systems and structures of equity, of fairness, of adding value to people regardless of their background, regardless of what everyone else is doing? As a leader, how do you stand up and say, no, we're not going to fudge the numbers so they look good. We're going to portray everything accurately and rightly. We're not going to allow our integrity to come under question for anything or anyone for any sum of money. What does it look like to act justly in your day-to-day actions? How about at your home? What does it look like to create relationships of sustainable justice within your family unit? How do you teach your children to love justice, to act in accordance with with God's laws, even when it's hard at school, even when everyone else doesn't believe and act the same way we do? How do we put things in place into our family rhythms where we teach truth and justice, where we teach that there is right and there is wrong and that it is important? Because the bottom line is that the law sums up in that, that we are to act justly in everything that we do and everything that's in our control. Sometimes the problem, though, is that we stop there. Any rule followers in here? I'm a rule follower, right? I like rules. They give me boundaries. They let me know what's right and what's wrong, and I'm a huge proponent of that. The only problem is that I can get stuck there. I can get so stuck on right things and right actions that I forget the entire second part of the commandment, which is to love mercy, to love compassion, to love grace, to find ourselves following this God who is just and true and right and good, but who at the same time would offer his grace and love, not treating us as our sins deserve, but letting Jesus die and take our place that we might be in right relationship with him. See, if we only uphold the law, we've missed the entire point of grace. We've missed the entire application of how God loves and moves us. And if we're going to be a people of God, then we must find ourselves in those places upholding justice, right, and truth in everything that we do, absolutely, but never forgetting the balance of love, mercy on the other side of that. Because here's the reality. The conduit for redemption and hope is actually justice. The way in which that we learn the value of mercy and grace is because we have a full understanding of all that justice is and all that it's trying to do. And only when we understand that our punishment for our sin is death will we be able to fully embrace the grace that is given to us in Jesus. If we enforce the law without learning about mercy, then we'll miss the entire point of what Jesus came to do. So we have to learn to act justly in everything that we do, but we must also balance that with a love for mercy, for compassion, for people from all walks of life, from all places, to lead in love in everything that we do. Now, how do we balance those two things out? That feels a lot like the judgment and hope that we've been talking about, to talk about loving mercy, but at the same time acting justly. What do we do when we come across a situation that doesn't fit into one of those nice, neat categories? What do we do when it's not that simple, when it's not black and white? What do we do when we don't know which side of God's equation we should fall on? It's the final part, right? Walk humbly with your God. 
God says, look, I get it. Those questions are above your pay grade. That's fine. So just keep in step with me, and I'll tell you what to do when. I'll tell you when a situation requires justice. I'll tell you when to uphold truth and the law, but I'll also speak to you, and I'll tell you when to offer grace grace and mercy. mercy. And And often as you walk through those types of things, you'll find that it is a both and, not an either or. Very similar to this message of judgment and hope. You can't have one without the other. Without the fear of what God is doing, there is no hope for a better future. If nothing gets cleaned up, then there's no hope for it being any better. If we don't teach justice and right actions, then grace becomes something that gets trampled over instead of something that gets championed. How do we navigate through that tension? Walk humbly. Keep focused on God. Keep in step with his spirit, listening to the ways in which he's working. Focus on God, who is the author and administrator, the dispenser of both. He is full of justice and truth and full of mercy and love. And his goal and his purpose is not to judge us, to beat us into submission, or even the people who are far from him. It's to invite us into his kingdom reality, to invite us into life and life to the full. So Micah, a prophet from 2,500 years ago who uses scary words and big language and things that we kind of would walk away from that bristles us a little bit, and he says, no, no, I agree with you. God is a God of truth and love. He's a God of justice and of grace, of mercy and of right standards. And our job is to find ourselves in the same space, learning from God, while at the same time dispensing all that he gives us to make the world reflect more of his attributes, which are on display in us. I'm going to invite the band to come forward. We'll sing one more song as they do that. I just want us to reflect on this prompt from Micah. So what does the Lord require of you? What is he asking of you in this time? How do you parse out this 2,500-year-old message? Is God challenging you to act justly in some way, to do the right thing, the hard thing, to have the difficult conversation? Or is God reminding you of his love and his mercy and his grace that's been given to you that you need to pour out? Perhaps the challenge is that you're in a situation where you need both and you don't know what to do. I would encourage you to find the way forward, to walk humbly, to live these things out. Because the invitation is not an invitation to judgment. It's an invitation to hope and a future that's on the other side of the justice conversation. So what will you do this week to find yourself in those places? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, these are tensions that we walk into, God, things where we find ourselves struggling in the midst of. And so, Heavenly Father, would you give us your divine perspective to see clearly the ways in which you might be leading and speaking to us. God, give us eyes to see, to understand, to live out and to respect your, your truth, your justice. God, that word judgment is harsh, but if we understand it in the grand scheme of things, Maybe there's a place for our understanding there. God, similarly, if there's a place in an area where we need to be dispensers of grace and mercy and love, God, would you equip us to be there? Would you equip us to be dispensers of the grace that was given to us that we might lead others in your truth? God, more than anything, would you keep us right here, God, focused and intensely listening to you, walking humbly step by step and hearing from you in all that we do and all that we have. 
God, help us to navigate the tension of this isn't either or, but it's both and. God, equip us to be those people in those places for our own lives, for the lives of the people around us, and for the sake of your kingdom come here and now. All God's kids agreed together and said,